Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and today I'm joined by human rights activist Ram Bandari. We had a great conversation about human rights in the context of the Nepalese civil war and the importance of truth-seeking and justice for the victims of human rights abuses ahead of an event Ram is a part of with Take Action on Thursday, the 11th of March at 6 p.m. You can find all the details for the event on Take Action social media, which will be linked in the description. Now I'll stop talking and let you get into the episode. Thank you to Ram Bandari for coming on the show. He's uh, he's here to talk about the event coming up with Take Action and his uh, sort of experiences with uh, human rights and human rights prevention uh, protection with the International Center for Transitional Justice. And uh, so if we could just start with a little bit of a, a background on the Nepalese civil war. You are uh, from Nepal and you had the sort of experience of of the the ten year civil war there, and uh, and I'd just like to ask about how the movement in the nineteen nineties in Nepal through groups like the United Left Front, how did that sort of translate into a, a ten year civil war? Oh, thank you, Mark. My name is Ram Bandari. I'm from Nepal. So thanks for your introduction. Uh, in nineteen. 19- 90s, and then we had uh, the, the first people's movement organized by the political organization and civil society organization. That was the recent big movement in the 90s. And then after the, uh, the movement, that movement succeeded to, to lead towards the democratic reforms with the constitutional monarchy. And in, in some years, the government, I mean, fell down into, I mean, very... Uh, uh, institutional corruption and then some uh, they also uh, organized some uh, uh, operation operation and then some uh, uh, and small uh, political parties based in the Nepal hills and then they were against the uh, I mean corruption parliamentary system and then the then constitutional monarchy I mean that was the political reasons. I mean, from other ways, politically, socially, and economically, there were other reasons of the uh, the violent conflict. In I mean, that has started in nineteen ninety six. Um, in my observation, there are uh, major. I mean, three. I mean, components that I see. I mean, that drove the uh, violent conflict in Nepal from nineteen ninety six. Those were the the I mean, structural violations, you know, how the the state structure, the security structure, bureaucratic structure, and political structure, they have violated the people's rights, and then there were I mean, there are few I mean systematic I mean abuses, you know, to to uh, violate the the citizens' rights, and then the state agencies they systematically excluded marginalized populations and then they had the, the most of the people they had very little access to the political institution political rights and little access to the i mean state services and the other i mean economic opportunities those were the main reasons and the another big reason is poverty you know the most of the people they were from poor regions and they were marginalized from the different, I mean, economic uh, um, options and the, the, I mean, employment opportunities. So many young people, 
they were deprived and deprived from the I mean state and structure. That's why I mean they joined the, the, the rebellion forces and then that led into the ten years civil war and then that was terrible and then that left some legacy of I mean thousands of killings, torture, displacement and then more than fifteen hundred enforced disappearances. That was the case. And then the, 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 I mean, government, you know, during the I mean, war time and then in the post-war time, the, the government structure, even, I mean, after the peace process in 2006, the, I mean, we didn't have very, uh, I mean, we didn't have like real ch changes, you know, in real practices. It's like a regime change without regime change. You know, the, I mean, we, we couldn't change the, the, the legal structures, you know, the judicial structure and the, the parliamentary structure and then the, some electoral system and then other, I mean, bureaucratic structure and political institutions. They just followed the uh, same, I mean, corrupt, you know, parliamentary system. And then again, and now, I mean, we have, a, a, and again, a big, I mean, political challenges and upheavals, you know, and then we still face the, I mean, uh, the, the problems at the top and then still the institutional corruption, institutional impunity, and then the other, I mean, the, the racial, I mean, some, I mean, ethnic uh, challenges, you know, and the, the, the socioeconomic conflicts are and it still existed, you know, in the ground. And then the, there are poor reasons, marginalized reasons, marginalized populations. They still face many problems and thousands of victims. They didn't receive justice. They didn't, I mean, receive support from the government structure. And the, in the same structure, I mean, they are oppressing again. And then the, there are some symbols and signals for the new conflict that, I mean, and we have already seen and witnessed in the field. And so, and also, I mean, there are certain role of international uh, donors and international uh, institutions, including the United Nations. I, I mean, that, I mean, how they have supported the Nepali peace process and transitional justice process, but they, the government failed to address victims' needs and the, the justice concern. And then, and after eight, nine years of the uh, peace process, and then there are many, I mean, I mean flawed process that, that the government initiated. And then after eight, nine years in 2014, government established two transitional justice bodies named Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Commission for the and Enforced Disappearance. And then the, the we uh, we means I mean the, the I represent victims organization and the civil society organization. So, and then we have a, a, a greater network all over the country, and we mobilized our members, and then we uh, we mobilized them to register the compliance, and then the, that resulted more than sixty five thousand compliance in the commission about human rights violations and crimes against humanity that has taken place during the uh, 10 years conflict. But the, I mean, the, the both bodies and the government institution, they are not serious to, to and handle and address those issues. And then there is no, I mean, investigation going on, you know, it's, it's a stalled process and the problems and the challenges are still born. 
these are big challenges now and uh, and in the Nepalese context uh, many perpetrators I mean elite perpetrators they still sit in position for example in the security forces Nepal police and Nepal army there are some senior bureaucrats and political leaders those were directly or indirectly involved during the conflict to violate the people rights these are bigger challenges so it's, it's a very deep seated i mean impunity that i mean how do we face today and there is no justice at all this is very sad from the victims and civil society perspective and uh, in my experiences you know for example i mean we named i mean numbers of elite perpetrators like in my father's case, you know, my father was a, a retired school teacher and then involved in the social activism in my hometown. And then we, we know the perpetrators, we named him, you know, and then, he's, he, and then he serves in the government position. And then even, I mean, government promoted him as a senior, uh, I mean, officers, officials. And then, I mean, from that perspective, you know, like my and many, I mean, activists in the field, they still... Uh, they still receive threats directly and indirectly. And so, I mean, there is no real protection mechanisms from the government side. And uh, there is little role, you know, from the government institution to, to and handle those differences that how so, we question. So these, these human rights violators are, are sort yeah. of somewhat protected by their position within the government, yes. even if they sort of perpetrated these disappearances and atrocities during the civil conflict? Right. There are many numbers of elite perpetrators sit in positions and then they, they directly, indirectly threat the, I mean, uh, family activists, human rights activists and other social civil society activists. And then even in the transitional justice processes and transitional justice act, we don't have uh, the, the protection mechanism for the victims and witness, you know, that's a big setback in the transitional justice act. And... Uh, when we you know the the review the transition justice process, it's a very flawed process, without I mean adequate uh, legal act and the legal procedures you know that government is uh, proceeding. And so, in my experience, you know this I mean, uh, and then we are still in a crisis you know to to uh, to dealing with the past past abuses and our. Uh, I, I know our national government structure and the institutions to, to deal with those past and abuses are very weak and politically instrumentalized. And also from the other practical viewpoint, I mean, they have a very little resources and no expertise at all. And uh, they are politically manipulated and then they, they rather serve the government interest yeah. and then they, they rather protect the perpetrators than serving the victims and the uh, and witness in, in practice. So it seems like there's a problem with the government that it, it, where parts of it perpetrated sort of violations yes, it, of human rights, then yeah, yeah, looking yeah. back and investigating itself. Right. Practically, these institutions, you know, the transitional justice bodies and the government structure, they are fully controlled by the state. And and then they are also they are controlled by the perpetrators. It's a perpetrators-led process, and so there are big challenges, and so that's why the the and then we we often raise the the, the issues of I mean accountability 
not only I mean uh, political accountability, but also the criminal accountability. You know how the political parties and government are criminalizing you know politics and also politicizing crimes. These are big challenges in our case, and 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 also that's I mean and then we see the 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 shadow of uh, shadow of the the I mean political manipulation in the civil society movement. And so that's why uh, also, I mean, there are, uh, it's civil society movement, uh, it's weak and divided. And then it's, it's like a, and then we don't see the governmental responsibility, you know, that, I mean, they are not serious, you know, in, in handling these issues. Yeah, interesting. So if, so with this sort of overall experience that you've had, this direct experience, the loss of your father dealing with the sort of aftermath of the Nepalese civil conflict. How, how did all of these experiences translate into a, a career in international sort of human rights protection and promotion? You know, on that issues, you know, and then we have some, I mean, achievement, you know, as I mentioned earlier that, I mean, we mobilized, I mean, thousands of victims and they complained and then government, I mean, they at least accepted and registered the cases. As a, as a evidence and then witnessed by the families and the history, this is these are some I mean historical achievement that I mean we uh, we I mean collected and then we registered the complaints there, and on the other side in the legal battle you know and then we uh, registered complaints in the uh, local courts and supreme court and then we also tested the international mechanism you know and then that we registered some of our cases in the human rights committee of the united nations and then we also registered some cases in the un working group on enforced disappearances these are some i mean and then we also use those things in our national policy debate and also in the international advocacy to question to the the government's accountability and the responsibility to protect human rights and then to protect victims rights in in the country but i mean in practice, you know, that the government, again, failed to implement those recommendations made by Human Rights Committee of the United Nations and some legal verdict that, uh, that I mean, directed by the Supreme Court and, and also the, some recommendation made by national human rights commissions. Government never implemented. And also the political parties, they made, I mean, various agreements, you know, to, to deal with the past and then to support victims and then to provide, deliver justice to the, uh, the, the victims and marginalized populations. But the government institution often fail, victims often fail to deliver justice. These are the problems. But I mean, that, that help us otherwise in the, from the civil society, um, I mean, movement side. And then we, we redefined victims movement to develop it as a new social movement and then we have a very strong representation, you know, in the in the national level, uh, national line. And also, and then we produced many leaders in the grassroots that I mean they carry not only their legacy of the conflict, and also they often mobilize uh, to influence in the policy advocacy. And also, we are using our members uh, in the local level to, to intervene socially, politically, and economically. So the social intervention is very powerful at the grassroots level. And then we are using these tools as a alternative resistance, you know, against the government's uh, irresponsibility. 
Yeah, I hear you there. That seems like the the right move when when government doesn't respond to the people, people mm-hmm. sort of forming together to to make their voices heard in the face of these kind of atrocities seems sort of like the the right move. And I think that that transitions well to our to a conversation about a, an organization that you've been a part of, the International Center for Transitional Justice. If you could sort of give an overview of the institution and in the context of the of human rights violations like the ones that occurred in the Nepalese civil conflict, what is the role for that institution and what can and can't it do uh, when sort of trying to, to monitor and enforce human rights within a sovereign state like Nepal? So do you mean the, the role of ICTZ? Yes, yes, I do. You know the ICTZ. You know in the and the, during the Nepal's peace process, it's like uh, the flood of NGOs and donors they entered in Nepal. You know, with their mm-hmm. own interest and then with their own agenda. That I mean, some I mean ICTZ quite uh, was played a quite positive role in our transition. You know, to strengthen uh, the the government process and to empower victims organization and then to create some partnership, I mean, in the civil society movement. But at the end, you know, they have left, you know, they have left, I mean, and then when their, I mean, projects ended, you know, ended. But uh, I think, you know, the in the, at the end, I don't see the, the, the clear result that, I mean, what they have played, you know. They also like uh, many, I mean, international NGOs, including ICTJ and the United Nations even, you know, and the International Commission of Jurists and then International Alert and so many organizations, you know. And then they were very, I mean, active and then they had like, they mobilized big resources and then they have brought so many experts from all over the world and they, they, uh, you know, they played, you know, in the policy shift and then also creating partnership with the government agencies and the other, other agencies in the, in the, uh, national level, but at the end, I mean, uh, I mean, we didn't see any result, and then there were, I mean, some, I mean, certain gaps in the in, in the grassroots, you know, the the majority victims and the the, the mm-hmm. majority population affected by the conflict. They they live in the rural sites, they live in countryside, they live outside the capital, and mostly those agencies, donors or international NGOs or the United Nations, and then they 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 are based in the capital. Kathmandu, and then they, you know, coordinate with the with the top level actors, and then they they also lobby with the donors and the political leaderships there, and then they they also uh, and then they uh, they mostly you know work with the the certain experts you know limited experts available in Kathmandu with the very I mean good language skills and technical skills those who can prepare reports and then can you know communicate to to donors you know in their own languages but they didn't I mean empower victim organization and then they couldn't I mean sustain themselves even you know to to uh, keep the the victims I mean agenda in the front in the center and so those were the some problems and mm-hmm. flaws with donors and international organizations but I mean in the I mean, when they left, you know, the the even the some I mean experts or some organization they work with, and then they are also weak, and then they have no resources and other things. So the expert left, and then their support, you know, the the indeed, and then their 
agenda also, I mean, in dead without result. And But I mean, we, the victim organization, the local peoples and population, they are still active and they're keeping their, I mean, agenda alive and they're creating some sort of, uh, I mean, other strategies, you know, the, the some yeah. other innovative strategies like the construction of local memorialization and some sort of social intervention kind of uh, small programs in the ground and creating a partnership with the uh, local governments and media and some teachers union, some, I mean, the, the, the OMEN groups and other cooperatives and like that. And so now I mean, they are linking with their activism with livelihood and memorialization and questioning to the government and institutional uh, responsibility. These are the, the, the new initiatives now, but the, the role of those organizations were also, uh, I mean, I criticize, you know, at certain level, you know, the, the role of United Nations, role of international organization, role of donors, you know, they are nowhere now. Yeah, so it's sort of on the sort of individuals and and groups who who are part of these victim organizations to sort of find the truth and find justice for themselves, and uh, and so what does truth seeking in that context mean? Why is it so important, and why is it sort of worth worth fighting for as victims organizations and people seeking justice? You know, in the long long you know years of battle and and in this i mean years of struggle for the families of the disappeared for the victims of violations truth is always important you know the, the everyone the individuals society and their relatives and their groups you know in the villages in the district in the different i mean places they seek answers you know the the answer is very important you know the living without answer living without justice you know it's it's very difficult to to continue their life and the different aspect of, I mean, life, you know, in, in a society. So uh, answer is very important. I mean, in our context, you know, for the victims and for the members in society, you know, the, the social truth and in the community truth, I mean, it's already established in, in Nepal, you know, but I mean, it's like a legal, I'm, there are, I mean, problems, you know, to find the legal and uh, the forensic truth. You know, but most of the organization at the beginning, they mostly focus on legal advocacy and the wider perspective of global justice and and the accountability issues, you know, that was not uh, very attached with the local population that, I mean, how do they, I mean, define justice for themselves, you know, that they did not, I mean, listen to them. And then they, I mean, um, some ways they, I mean, ignore their the local issues and the needs of the victims, you know. And then, the, the, I mean, how the victims are in the local context demanding social justice, you know, but uh, the, the agencies in the, in the capital, they're focusing on the, on the larger accountability issues and the, the global justice, you know, the, the concern that how did they, I mean, impose in their projects that did not, I mean, uh, and include victim needs and their social justice concerns I mean, around their livelihood, around their, I mean, the, the, the dignified life in society mm -hmm. and their voices, you know. Both the government and international agencies, they did not listen to their voices. Those were the problems. But the truth-seeking and the justice are always I mean, important and they are linked, you know, without establishing truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, can, we cannot proceed to the justice process. And then without, I mean, addressing their needs, 
the real needs and the everyday needs, the families cannot stand and cannot speak out. You know, because the without most of having their, that truth first, yeah, without yeah. sort of understanding the extent of what occurred yeah. to them, what occurred to their loved ones, yeah. Yeah, and then mostly organization, you know, they, they looked at uh, the legal sides, you know, not on social, economic, and political sides. Those were the problems and gaps in Nepali process. So turning now to the event that you were doing with uh, Take Action, if you could do do a sort of elevator pitch for it, including sort of what fragile, account- fragile accountability means and what attendees can sort of expect from the event. You know, I think I will uh, uh, I will share the you know session with I mean one of my friends from University of Arizona, and then what we have discussed is I mean we'll cover the I mean both I mean civil society organizations and government I mean governmental responsibility, and then we'll we'll include the more I mean inclusive approach to I mean civil society and the and, and the governmental I mean. The, the governance, you know, governance system, I mean, within the accountability issues. And then when we, we I, I mean, speak of, I mean, the, the let's say, I mean, theoretical or principal side, and then I'll, I'll come up, I'll bring the, I mean, examples from Nepal, you know, how the, the, the institutions, both the government and civil society institutions, fail to deliver, I mean, or fail to, I mean, uh, bring, I mean, accountability. I mean, they are not, I mean, um, and the institution aren't accountable. Uh, and then also there are big challenges and questions on the uh, institutional accountability, you know, both in the uh, government institutions and the civil society or, and institutions and political institutions. We, we talk about that and then we'll make it more practical and interactive. Yeah, so if this conversation and the sort of description of the event there, that sounds interesting to you, make sure that you come along to the Take Action event. You can find Mm -hmm. it on Facebook, and it is Thursday, March 11th at uh, 6 p.m. London time. So so we hope to see you there. And uh, I'd like to say thank you to Ram Bhandari for coming on the show, for speaking with me. and, uh, And yeah, I look forward to seeing you at the event. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much.